I think we will just uh, go with the flow. Now, the, uh, the topic for today is 5G for this panel. Uh, recall that the topic for the conference, as you can see, is Rethinking Industrial Policy in the Digital Age, Challenges for Europe. And 5G, I think, is, a, is really a perfect manifestation of, of uh, industrial policy at the, at the European and also member state level. It's a, it's a good opportunity for industrial policy. Now, so what is 5G? 5G is one of those topics that's uh, on every tongue. And uh, if you look in the press, I think you would rapidly conclude that 5G will do everything but chill your beer. Well, that's what you see in about half of the reports. Uh, the other half of the press reports uh, would stay instead, well, it may not chill the beer, but it actually does a reasonably good job driving the sensors that tell you how well your beer has been chilled. So um, 5G represents a substantial opportunity. Now. Um, Sensors, again, Internet of Things, uh, as we've heard in some of the previous panels, uh, this is an area where Europe does have opportunities, largely because of our industrial strengths. And 5G has a nexus, that's why it's part of the, uh, the title of the panel. Uh, 5G has the opportunity both to support very large numbers of devices uh, and also to support, through, through network slicing, <coughs> to support different qualities of service that may be needed for different applications, different use cases. Manufacturing, for example, in many instances might need low latency and high reliability. Uh, there's the opportunity to tailor the services towards specific application needs, and that's probably where the real opportunity lies. Connected vehicles, there are many pl places where 5G could have application. But the natural question is, uh, where do we in Europe actually stand in regard to 5G? Uh, and in that sense, both, uh, you know, where do the network operators stand, where do the manufacturers stand, where, what's our supply chain looking like, and especially where do we stand in regard to public policy. Uh, 5G is not just another G. One of the big changes that it's likely to drive is a need for what's referred to as network densification, a substantial increase in the number of cell sites. And that has big economic implications. All of those cell sites have to be served, in most cases, with uh, backhaul using fiber optics. It has to get there. That's another kind of broadband problem. Uh, and also, it implies some things that telecoms experts normally don't like to deal with, like uh, municipal permitting issues, and also uh, the, uh, the risk of health effects caused by mobile services, or so-called electromagnetic field issues, EMF. So uh, there are a number of things that public policy has to address. Now, what we have from November uh, is a European Electronic Communications Code that attempted both to uh, establish more firmly when radio spectrum would be made available for the services and also how some of these issues might be dealt with and, and generally to make for a more friendly investment climate. Um, but I think the topic for the panel is uh, so this is where we think we are, or where we would like to be. Uh, where are we, in fact? And we have, I think, a, a very nice, by the way, a gender-balanced panel. Notice, gen this is a good thing. Um, so we've got a, but we also have a panel that represents, in addition to that, uh, I think a good balance of, of the various interests. Ah, and I, I, uh, yes, Ms. Shaka, thank you very much. You're here. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, so we have, I believe, a, a, a very good mix of very high-profile speakers. Uh, uh, Lisa Fuhrer, head of uh, Etno, and uh, again, will be taking something of an industry position. She'll be telling us where things look to the network operator community. 
we have uh, Tony Graziano from, uh, from Huawei who will be giving us more of the supplier view, uh, Huawei really being a leading supplier of 5G equipment. Uh, Andreas Geis is a head of unit with the European Commission, uh, expert on spectrum management, also I might say an old friend. And, um, and uh, Ms. Schake, who's one of the leading MEPs on digital services. And um, if okay, uh, I don't know what, if you have time constraints, I assume that we'll go in the same order that we're in the program, if that's okay. Yep, that's Good. Okay. So if each of you could speak for, uh, let's say, 12, not more than 12 minutes in general, I think we'll be perfect on the time frame. And we'll take questions at the end then. Okay, since uh, I guess my name is the first in the program, I'll kick it off and uh, thank you for inviting Etno to this panel. Uh, 5G is of course one of the things that lies very close to our hearts and, and also uh, a thing that's preoccupying our members uh, a lot these days. Um, for those of you who don't know Etno, Etno is the um, trade association for uh, the leading telcos here in in Europe, and our members are actually putting 60% uh, of the investments in infrastructure in, in Europe. So uh, we do represent a lot of, of the infrastructure that's being built here in, in Europe. Uh, but for me, discussing 5G and uh, Internet of Things, I think this is about discussing Europe's place in, in a global market. And uh, for all of us, I think there are two things this actually means. And the first thing is, of course, can we grow and innovate as, as Europeans? And can we be a leading technological exporter of our uh, products and our solutions. Sit second, can we actually provide our citizens with good uh, choice of, of digital services and actually services that are developed on the European values, uh, for example, like uh, privacy? So uh, if we look at this, and, and you actually hinted it to it, uh, Marcus, is um, we, we believe that all of this needs that we should co-create a strong uh, European industrial policy and vision. And we need to do this with all the stakeholders. So that, that means, uh, of course, both the public and private stakeholders. And, and we believe an industrial vision is key for Europe to go forward. I actually agree very much with the prior panel where you had Joachim Reiter saying we have a digital single market that's uh, fragmented and if we want to go uh, forward with this we need to ensure that it's not fragmented, that it is a truly digital single market. But I still believe that when we look at all this uh, we have uh, the US, we have Asia, and here in Europe, we need to find our own way forward. It's important, whatever we do, that we actually promote our own values and our own uh, norms. And uh, actually, like the GDPR, we export it to, to the world. You can discuss uh, uh, how GDPR is, is actually being implemented, but it is a, a fact that a lot of other countries picked up uh, on, on GDPR as, as a standard. 
So I actually believe that we as, as Europeans has a unique opportunity to, to build products that are based on uh, some strong European um, values. And this is for me privacy, that's a strong consumer protection, and also uh, a lot of transparency of, of what's going on. And I think this is actually giving us a unique opportunity to develop sustainable products and actually also keep ensuring the trust uh, from the users because trust is another thing that's really under uh, a lot of uh, pressure these days and trust is, is key for all of us because if we don't trust our products, no one will use them. So uh, if I see uh, 5G leadership from the ethno perspective, there are three main things I believe is, is key. And first of all, uh, 5G networks is not only a mobile network. It's a smart, intelligent network that's actually converging fixed and mobile uh, technologies. And therefore, going forward, we will need a huge uh, investment both in fixed and mobile networks and uh, to make these come together in, in one smart network. And I believe this is the strength of 5G. It's exactly that we put intelligence in the network. Um, second, there is going to be a lot of virtualization and softwareization of the networks. Um, and this will actually bring computing closer uh, to, um, to the user. For example, uh, we've been at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. We saw virtual reality glasses that were not as heavy as the usual ones because you actually now bring um, the, uh, you bring the capability of, of the computing uh, another out to the core of, of the network. So, it's actually going to be very, very useful for IoT, and this is where I think uh, um, 5G is, is differing from uh, 4G, because the networks will know what devices are on the network, and it will actually help us uh, do... Uh, uh, find the, the flaws in, in the system of if there is a device not working, it's easier to detect in, in a 5G network. And second and equally important, uh, 5G network is, is a platform where actually the telcos will co-create together with other industries. And, and to me, this is a key uh, part of 5G because we're creating a new ecosystem where uh, the industry, other industries and telcos can work together uh, with, the, um, uh, with, the, with the telcos on 5G solutions. And here, uh, the connected cars is a good example or smart manufacturing. So if I'm to get back to your, your uh, question on, on policy, uh, I think it's important when we talk about 5G, we're not talking about networks as dump pipes. That's uh, for sure. This is uh, so 90s to think like that. But uh, technologically, actually, 5G is the opposite because we make the network smarter. And that actually requires that we have up-to-date service and data regulation. So this is going to be key in the way forward for uh, 5G, that we have uh, uh, both service and data regulation that takes this into account. 
If we look at the investment, we actually have a 500 billion investment needed to uh, achieve 5G. These are the numbers from, from the Commission itself. And 55% uh, of this will be in fiber. We'll actually have 30% in radio access networks. And 15% will be in uh, proximity, data proximity centers. So we will have a lot of investment that needs to be, be done. And why am I mentioning this? Because, as uh, Marcus also said, we had a, a code just been uh, agreed last year. And from our point of view, that code needs to have a focus on investment. So investment is key if we want to accelerate the investments in, in all these networks. And, and now, uh, because the code has been agreed and signed off, it's uh, up to Barrick that's uh, looking into the guidelines that's coming out of the code and the member states on how they can actually ensure that pro-investment is, is uh, the main topic for, for this code. You also mentioned spectrum, and spectrum is, is, of course, also key for us. What we see right now is there are a lot of auctions going on before the code is, is implemented or transpositioned in, in the member states. And we have some very good examples, like Finland, where there was an auction that actually uh, went very well and allowed room for uh, investments for, for the telcos. But we also have another one ongoing in Germany, where we know that uh, investors are keeping a close eye on what's going on, because there are some of the uh, requirements and also uh, reservations of spectrum to, to other parties that might cause concerns for uh, investors in this. And uh, here I'd like to point out that the Commission actually started out with a very ambitious uh, uh, outset on, on spectrum, uh, asking for 25 years spectrum. We ended up with 15 plus 5. Uh, so it didn't go uh, as, as we hoped, but uh, there were some good intentions. I think it's now important that the signals we sent to the uh, to the markets is that we're taking 20 years and we do it in a way that has a focus on that 5G needs this uh, 500 billion investment. So it's key actually to to keep this in mind whenever uh, uh, the auctions are created. So this might seem very negative, but no, I'm actually very uh, positive and enthusiastic about this. Whenever I um, meet the CTOs of our companies, they have a strong focus on wanting to make 5G happen, and also a very strong focus on that 5G is actually going to be uh, a facilitator for many of the other industries in Europe in becoming uh, globally competitive. So when we talk about 5G, we're not talking about this is the telcos that need to have a new shiny network. It's actually all of Europe's infrastructure and all of Europe's industries competitiveness that depends on us getting in front with 5G. So transforming our networks into a futuristic, dynamic, and open uh, thing will actually be the core of a new digital age. Well, thank
Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Lisa. Uh, an inspiring address. And I, but I, I think what you've nicely done is to bring the discussion back to industrial policy and the link that 5G really has to it. Much appreciated. And also thank you for keeping to the time. Yeah. So uh, with that, I'd like to hand off to Tony Graziano from uh, okay. uh, Huawei. You're, yes, I think they can bring your slides up. And I have a presentation. Um, yes. The way that I will, I'll be tackling this, uh, um, Scott, I think I would like to contextualize the whole discussion. Because I would like to contextualize that discussion because I think when we talk about 5G, people fail to see exactly what we are talking about in terms of uh, data usage, in terms of speed, in terms of uh, frequency usage, in terms of energy efficiency, but also in terms of uh, the use case. So I, I will be looking into, into that. Also, since I work for uh, Huawei, I will be providing you some uh, information as to what Huawei has been doing, but most importantly, how we will we plan to, uh, to tackle uh, 5G. I will spend a few words about the 5G progress in Europe, which uh, I think it is important, because there is quite a lot of discussion about how Europe is uh, doing. And I think it's, Europe is, is doing pretty well. Um, and I, I will say more later on. And also, last but not least, how the EU in general is ready for the de uh, deployment of um, uh, 5G. So, if I, okay, All right. So, let's start from the from the services. I think this is quite um, quite important. So like I said, because we need to actually visualize exactly what 5G is going to bring. It's going to bring. Uh, a, spectrum efficiency, an area which I think has been causing a problem for um, industry. It's going to be able to connect many, many more uh, devices, not only in numbers, but also how clustered uh, they are. It's also going to have a, a big impact on the um, environment in terms of uh, uh, reducing the um, energy consumption of a telecom network, which it's by far the biggest expense from a uh, telecom provider. Um, and also, it's going to increase the um, amount of, of data that obviously will be able to, uh, to be uh, transmitted. Now, in terms of usage, there are three key usage areas. Uh, and these are dictated pre uh, predominantly by the um, characteristics that are required for those devices. There is going to be the, what we call it, enhanced mobile broadband, and this is going to be what we call it the bread and butter of um, 5G, because they are the ones that will be tackling uh, predominantly the, the video transmission and, uh, and all that. And I have a, a slide uh, later on to, to show you to show you that. The um, massive machine type communication, again, I think the main objective there is to make sure that they are able to handle the huge amount of devices being able to be connected at, uh, at the same time. And last but not least, it's the uh, ultra-reliable and low latency. I think the, the word says it. It's obviously uh, it's a type of devices that needs to be reliable and also it needs to 
to make sure that it has got a latency so that you can allow to do um, you know that kind of features that can be tackled on a um, uh, live live basis. And these are these are the again the the, the three application areas where I think we will see um, all the devices being um, developed. What we are seeing currently now, or I think what we'll see certainly when 5G starts to, to be developed, we will see the enhanced mobile broadband. That's, it's going to be the first wave. And also because currently the standard that we have on um, 5G only caters for that part of uh, um, uh, those usage area. And then later on, with the, the later release of, of other standards, which is uh, going to be released, uh, we, we expect um, March next year, then we will see the other uh, equipment being, uh, coming to the, to, the, to the market. Huawei. Again, what has uh, Huawei been doing um, about this? Huawei is a, a technology provider. Obviously, we are a, a company, a global um, company. Um, we are in the provision of uh, telecommunication network, not only that, but also consumer devices and end-to-end -end, um, business. We are a technology provider. And we have been working on 5G now since 2009. And we, we are the first one that, well, not the first one, but certainly our first prototype on uh, 5G we developed back in 2012. And by the way, in 2018, last year, we were the first company that was able to, pro to provide an end-to-end -end, uh, system for um, 5G based on the uh, release 15 standards. Um, obviously, those results came because of our strong investment in um, R&D. Now, we have 11 R&D research um, center globally, and I think the, the map shows you where, where they are. We have more, we have issued, um, we have more than 300 top scientists who are devoted to, um, to developing uh, 5G further, and also we have 8,000 engineers that are, that are actually supporting that. And our involvement, apart from what we are doing, obviously, from a, from a company perspective, our involvement has also been seen in, in the, the fact that we have been actively cooperating in the International Foreign Consortium, because we are a strong believer of international standards. Uh, I believe ITU and most importantly 3GPP are the ones that um, are driving this. We, we, are, we have also played and will continue to play, I, I hope, a part in the 5GPPP. This is the um, uh, Europe-funded public-private um, partnership. Uh, and most importantly, we are part of the IMT 2020, which is a, um, an organization in China, but there are similar um, organizations in US, Korea, and uh, Japan. Um, now, in addition to, to all that we have done, obviously, the, one of the key areas that has also played a key role in our uh, leadership in this has been the uh, cooperation that we have established with a number of leading um, universities. And these are universities that, that are uh, 
based um, globally. I think the slide gives you um, some of the of the names, but I, I can tell you that there are more than 200 uh, universities. And, and we have developed more than 300 papers, uh, obviously linked to furthering the 5G technology. Now, where are we in terms of uh, 5G? Um, as I mentioned already, uh, one important aspect of 5G is, is obviously to make sure that there are uh, international standards. 3GPP has been working on that. They've released uh, uh, release 15 uh, last year, and this is the one that obviously people are starting to use to deploy uh, 5G. And as I said, the way that it has been um, uh, developed is that we will see a first wave of EMBB um, devices out of the release uh, 15. Now, we expect release 16 to be um, issued in March or first quarter next year. And after that, obviously, we will see uh, a full deployment of what we we call it the full range of devices possible with from 5G. Now, what is the situation in uh, in the EU? Um, this uh, this information, by the way, I've I've taken from the 5G uh, observatory. This is a, an uh, observatory that has been established by the Commission to take stock of where we are in terms of 5G deployment in the, in the EU. And as you can see from the slide, the EU is doing pretty well. You know, they, the, there are already nine countries that have developed uh, their own national uh, 5G uh, plan. There are 138 um, uh, pilots that are, um, um, that are currently taking place throughout Europe. And most importantly, there are 10 corridors that have been um, identified because one of the key applications of 5G will be on connected vehicle. And I will mention a little bit more on that. An area which unfortunately Europe is not leading, and this has already been mentioned by Lise and I'm sure will be mentioned by Andreas, is the spectrum allocation. Although they have identified the spectrum, unfortunately releasing it, this is becoming a, a bottleneck. And I think this is an area that maybe the, the policy um, people ought to be uh, focusing on, because again, the availability of a spectrum is crucial for the full deployment of uh, 5G. Now, if we look at how that is in a in a global context, once again, we'll see that uh, Europe is, is not doing um, badly. Uh, there are uh, other countries or regions that uh, may be uh, starting to launch um, services. But like I said, there is a, a difference in what those country regions are focusing on. Now, the likes of Japan and Korea, obviously, because of their historical strength on audiovisual equipment, their main focus now is in using 5G for the deployment of, you probably heard, 4K videos or enhancing the audio-video capability of um, equipment. Uh, we, as a, as a company, obviously, are fully supportive of that. But what we believe that the strength or the, the key um, 
the, the crucial part of uh, 5G will be Internet of, um, of, uh, of Things. And we have already heard from uh, the speaker from Vodafone, and I totally agree, agree with him, Europe has got all the makings to lead in that particular area. Because if we consider what IoT will be about, IoT will be about connecting devices. <laughs> devices that will be in, a, in what we call it vertical sectors now. And Europe has got the strength of the vertical sector, be it um, connected vehicle, be it uh, vehicle, uh, financial sector, medical sector. Europe leads in that. And the fact that they have the knowledge of that industry, applying the connectivity aspect, I think, should be, in a way, much simpler and probably for them to, to take that kind of uh, leadership. Um, the last part of the presentation is about the readiness. And once again, I've taken this out of a report that I've seen recently from Insights. Basically, what they would have done, they've analyzed the readiness of the European countries um, about the deployment of uh, uh, 5G. And as you can see there, they've clustered in, well, three, possibly four clusters. Um, and I think the way that we are seeing it, obviously, cluster one, it's going to be the Nordic, Baltic country, well, Nordic countries, um, Central European country, who are, without a doubt, leading um, uh, currently the deployment of um, uh, 5G. Then we have the second cluster, which is the, the Mediterranean, um, and then the third cluster, which is predominantly Eastern um, Europe countries. And the way that they've uh, analyzed their uh, readiness, there were six factors that uh, they looked into. And within those six factors, there were 35 different uh, aspects that obviously they used to um, um, categorize each uh, member, each country readiness. So they looked at uh, infrastructure and technology, uh, regulatory and uh, policy aspects, the innovation landscape, the human capital, the country profile, the in terms of GDP, in terms of uh, uh, readiness for, for, and last but not least, demand. And I think the top country, as far as I can remember, was Finland, followed uh, uh, closely by uh, Sweden, and then obviously the other the other countries. Now, an important aspect that, again, I think I would like to once again mention, as far as we are concerned, and this uh, was mentioned by uh, the Vodafone speaker before me, but also Lise, is the spectrum allocation. Because I think in Europe, unfortunately, the way spectrum is allocated or is uh, assigned, it's very much based on well, from government perspective, is is seen as a way of, uh, you know, addressing their budget defi um, deficit. Uh, this is uh, how, mostly how it is approached in Europe. But if we look at other regions, you know, Asia, 
Um, there you will see that it's approached very much about what benefit we can gain out of the use of spectrum. And that has resulted in Asia being probably the leaders, certainly in broadband deployment. And obviously, they are playing a key role, obviously, for the 5G, uh, for the 5G uh, deployment. So really, this is an important policy area that Europe at the moment hasn't got it right yet. There are reasons, uh, and I'm, I'm sure there are very good reasons for that. But I think if Europe really intends to lead, then I think they, need to, they, they ought to be looking at this in a, uh, in a much more critical, critical manner. Again, I think some of the, of the key comments that uh, obviously we would like to make on uh, um, Spectrum, because obviously Spectrum, uh, apart from being allocated, it's also critical to, to say how much of it it can be used and how much of it it's close together. Because the availability of spectrum and the way that it is available has a major implication on the design of uh, equipment. And by that, it has got an implication on the, on the cost of the uh, uh, equipment. So the, you know, there is an important part of the frequency that is the 700 megahertz frequency you know, that's a very attractive frequency. Why? Because it has got some particular uh, capability in order that it can be used for long distances, but also it can be used for equipment indoors and outdoor. And the more we go up the frequency, I think the less, uh, more critical it, it becomes the what we call it, the, the environment uh, around it. So that's why I think it's important that we have the, the, the right amount of frequency, but also in the right um, uh, frequency uh, place. And just to conclude, and to some of the takeaways that I would like to maybe highlight, is obviously the EU as I've already mentioned before, has all the ingredients to lead on, on 5G. But the key, the, the key to developing a, a recipe is obviously how you mix all those ingredients. And I think that will be crucial. As I mentioned, there are issues with regard to spectrum. There are issues maybe to uh, other aspects with regard to the infrastructure. And I think the person from Vodafone. I know I, I keep mentioning it because he gave a, an excellent um, uh, speech. You know, there are issues with regard to, to R&D um, and also with regard to the readiness of the uh, EU uh, with regard to the 5G adoption. Now, in terms of what we expect from 5G, I think these, this for now is, uh, is guesswork because obviously very much of that will depend on really how well the, this will be taken, but also whether there, is going to be, there are going to be policy in places which I think will obviously assist the overall take up. Certainly I think we believe that 
5G will start to accelerate from 2020. I mean, this year, uh, the end of this year, we will start to see uh, commercial deployment in Europe and obviously other regions. But like I said, there, there is going to be a, an acceleration of what we think by 2020. And that obviously will be reflected on how it will be taken up in West Europe and also Eastern Europe. In West Europe, we expect, again, this is a prediction, that more than 150 million devices will be uh, connected by 2023. And obviously, in East Europe, that, that, that number will be considerably less. And on that note, Scott, that's, that's my, my contribution. Thank you very much for a really uh, comprehensive overview. Uh, just before I hand off to Andreas, I, I, I'd like to actually comment on, on a bit of this because it's an area that I've worked on. It's very much uh, um, Andreas Geis's area at the Commission. Um, the, um, there's some history here with these spectrum allocations. Uh, this really represents a second cycle of trying to take broadcast spectrum and reassign it for mobile services. Uh, the first one was in the so-called 800 megahertz band. Uh, and that one was a rather problematic process. There were standards, there, there was a decision put forward as to when the spectrum was supposed to be free to market. Uh, hardly any of the member states were actually able to keep to the dates. Uh, Germany is the only one I can recall that actually was able to really free the spectrum on time. Uh, everyone else ran late, some of them by as much as, I guess, five years or more. It was really a, a, a bad scene. The Commission has worked very hard, I know, to try to deal with these issues in the European Code. Um, but um, I, th I think at the moment we're, we'll soon see how, uh, how well that actually works on the delivery side. Uh, the other issue is a valid one where, in fact, I've done work for the Commission as well. Uh, this issue of spectrum pricing. You know, people know about spectrum auctions. Um, if you read the press, usually the press will say the auction was successful because it raised a lot of money for the government. What people often forget is that's not at all the reason why the auctions exist. Uh, there was a very nice paper uh, written by Ronald Coase in 1959, later Nobel Prize winner, that argued that the reason to do auctions is it was the best way to get allocative efficiency, to make sure that the spectrum wound up in the hands of whoever would value it most and was therefore likely to use it best. And I'm pretty sure that the Commission is very much on board with exactly these kind of issues. So I know you've worked very hard to get these things into the code. How do, uh, I think, handing off to you, but I would, I'm pretty sure you'll want to respond to those bits and tell me how you think things are playing out. Thank you, Scott, and uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here today and to talk to you about 5G and the, the um, of course, I'll be looking specifically at the spectrum topic since that's my area of uh, expertise. Um, I'd like to say a bit about the achievements that we have, a bit about the remaining gaps that I see, and also a little bit about IoT at the end. So that's sort of my, my take on things. Um, we started out in the Commission quite early with setting an action plan for 5G back in 2016. And last year, at the end of last year, we also adopted the code, the Electronic Communications Code, which also um, has as an objective to ensure um, and facilitate investment into 5G. Of course, we think that uh, that 
our proposal that we made for the code was, uh, of course, something where we went, where we were ambitious and we were trying to make proposals that would go further than what we ended up in in the end, but that's just the way it is. I mean, we have to, of course, note that this is a, a discussion between the Commission, the Council and the Parliament, and we came out where we are. So what we have done at the Commission level since then is that we have worked on those areas where we are um, able to harmonize things, and that is to identify, for example, the 5G pioneer bands, to set the technical conditions and to harmonize those technical conditions in the pioneer bands. And then it is, of course, something that we have to leave over to and hand over to the member states for the assignment procedures for the spectrum awards which take place at the national level. So we have, like I said, harmonized the technical conditions for the 700 megahertz band for 3.4 to 3.8, and we're very close to um, finalizing everything we need to do on the 26 gigahertz band, also in terms of the technical conditions. So everything is laid out in terms of that. We have in the code deadlines by when the member states shall allow use in these pioneer bands, which will be by the end of 2020. And we have laid out in the code what we think is important in the context of doing the assignments. So things like uh, a long-term um, license duration. It was already mentioned by Lisa earlier, 15 plus 5. So we are also um, confident that this will be a 20-year um, time that can be expected reasonably by the players. We have specific rules on spectrum fees. We have solutions to solve cross-border interference issues in case they come up between the member states. Um, we have also initialized a process which we call the peer review. That's where the member states um, talk to each other about what um, plans they have in terms of awards, how certain awards went, and so on and so on. So this is also something that's an internal workshop for the member states in order to exchange experience. So looking at that last point, um, I think that that's something that is underway and led by the Radio Spectrum Policy Group. And we can see that while some auctions have taken place, you saw the slide from Tony where you could see that there's still a lot to do in terms of assignments in Europe. However, we also see that uh, actually this year there will be 11 member states that uh, have planned auctions. And uh, next year, in 2020, I think a further uh, number of the member states uh, that we already have clear plans for the auctions. So. We see that things will be moving and will be, you know, quite dense this year in terms of making the assignment processes. When we look at these processes, of course, what we are interested in is to ensure that um, the processes are done in a way that they facilitate 5G. And uh, that is, of course, also the objective of the member states. Um, but there are certain things which we think where there are gaps where we need to ensure that we work on to ensure that this 5G uh, facilitation happens. 
Let me mention, first of all, uh, a very important frequency band 3.4 to 3.8 gigahertz, where there are already a lot of licenses in place, and these are smaller parts of the band, whereas for 5G we need big contiguous blocks of spectrum so that you can also provide the data rates which um, we foresee with 5G. I think uh, you also saw this already on Tony's slide. Just to let you know that we have um, in January um, adopted an implementing decision in which we also make very clear that it's important to have this contiguous spectrum, preferably 80 to 100 megahertz of contiguous spectrum, so a spectrum block of that size, that is, um, gives the opportunity for the stakeholders to bid for that spectrum and then also to have it um, uh, available for high data rates. The other thing that's important is wide area coverage and investment in networks. Now, of course, wide area coverage is important because what we want to do with 5G really goes to you know, where citizens live, work, and also travel. And therefore, we are working closely with the member states to ensure that the coverage is actually as wide as possible. Now, I think it, this has to be done in a very transparent way so that everyone understands, also the stakeholders when they go through the assignment processes, understands what are the coverage requirements and they need to be very clear up front. If they're clear up front, if everything is transparent, they can be taken into account and factored into the auctions and the award processes. But on the other hand, this is very important in order to avoid the digital divide, so that we have 5G in the, let's say, cities, and then um, again, the rural areas are lagging behind in terms of 5G connectivity and the po all the possibilities that we hear that you might have in agriculture and what have you also in rural areas. So we want to ensure that this wide coverage is there. Of course, we also want to ensure investments in networks. And I've very carefully listened to what others have said about the worries they have about national processes which lead to high prices. And certainly that's also something that worries us. We want to avoid these high prices because whatever flows into, let's say, auctions and, and the bids being made is money that's missing in terms of investment and rollout of the 5G network as such. Now, member states will tell you, um, yes, of course, everybody's free to bid what they want to bid in an auction, right? So why, why are you looking at us? It's basically you, you guys who are bidding, right? But um, I mean, I think that's only half of the story. It's also about the conditions that you make uh, in an auction. And I think it's, it's very important that certain conditions are there which avoid, let's say, bids going through the roof. So what, what is important there is things like, you know, setting reserve prices at the right level, things like uh, avoiding artificial scarcity of spectrum. So we have some countries where there's still um, parts of the spectrum being used by military services instead of being auctioned. And that creates artificial scarcity. Also, um, as I said earlier, it's important that there is high transparency upfront about what the conditions also for coverage are so that this can be factored into whatever the bids are done. 
So I think these are these are important elements which uh, need to be considered and which certainly we will also be working together with the member states to see that uh, these are taken into account. So let me just dwell on one other issue that I think is uh, important in the context of 5G, and that is the uh, a consistent approach to EMF limits. Now, there's been quite some discussion about EMF lately. Um, cert certainly, we see the recommendations which are in place, which are also being made by the International Commission of Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection, what a name, in, so in short, it's called ICNIRP. Um, and these are limits which are for um, the exposure to EMF. These, these are um, limits that we've also put into a recommendation, and we think these are the, the ones that are actually um, shown to be the right limits. So we've seen that if the EMF limits are set at a stricter level than what is recommended by the uh, international scientists, then this might lead to severe constraints in terms of the data speeds and the volumes that you can achieve with both 5G or 4G or whatever. And that is something that uh, is, is worrying. So we think that uh, it's important that all um, accept these limits and also apply them consistently. Also, we have done a study um, recently in use, on using millimeter waves for 5G de deployment. Um, I'm pretty sure, Scott, you'll know about that one since you were involved. And also in that study, it says that uh, public exposure to EMF is typically um, not linearly correlated with the number of base stations. So if you have more small cells rolling out, it doesn't mean that the EMF limits go up in the same direction. In, in fact, by making... A, um, more small cells, you are decreasing in a way the need for high power, high tower base stations, which um, actually create a, a larger problem if you're close by in terms of EMF. So these are, I think, important elements, and we are also working as uh, as the Commission as a follow-up to the code on the small cells initiative. So we also want to work towards an easy rollout of small cells in certain cases, and that's what we are working on. We have a current public consultation on this um, uh, to get input, and based on that, we will be working on an implementing act in order to... Um, exempt certain types of small cells from individual town planning permits. So my last point that I want to make today is just on IoT, on Internet of Things. There's also here, I think, uh, a lot of opportunities, as we've heard, and also in terms of spectrum, we have a number of opportunities in place. And you can use 5G, or um, for, for Internet of Things, so there are opportunities with technologies called GSM IoT, narrowband IoT, LTE machine type communications. These are all sort of standards which are part of the, um, let's say, spectrum where there are individual rights of use for the operators. So th these are one way to access. However, it's also uh, I just wanted to make you aware that there are also other opportunities around um, for these types of IoT devices, and that is we have harmonized spectrum for short-range devices, which are 
license exempt, so generally authorized. You can just use the spectrum. You don't have to pay for anything. Of course, you have to share it with everybody else as well, but that's then uh, the trade-off that you have. And we also have a new uh, decision which we've taken in um, October last year about network short-range devices, which are basically data networks which can use certain frequencies in a light licensing regime. Again, this is access to spectrum, which doesn't mean that you have to go through an auction in order to get access. And it, this is something that's interesting for especially SMEs, which may not have the, let's say, um, financial capabilities to get individual rights of use, but they also want to um, start up uh, networks and become part of the IoT. So I'll stop there, but I'll be happy to answer questions later when we get into the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much for very comprehensive remarks. And with that, I'd like to turn over without uh, hesitation to uh, MEP Shaka. Very glad you can be with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I think a lot has been said, if not everything. And there's also not so much time for questions left. So I want to make sure that there will be at the end. So I'll try to be short. Um, I think it is very clear from everything that's been said that there's an enormous promise and expectation coming with the rollout of the fifth generation um, spectrum and, and the technologies that can be connected, the new kinds of infrastructure that can be built. But it's also clear that the potential impact on people's lives will be profound, and I think that that is something that we should clearly keep in mind. Uh, it's therefore also not surprising that there's quite a few strategic considerations involved, and I think uh, it's absolutely necessary as Lisa also pointed out to take a global perspective uh, and to look at the broad ecosystem of different elements that are going to be necessary for Europe to do the right thing and to develop its own uh, governance and enabling kind of model uh, that will allow for, for proper rollout of, um, of 5G. Now, I was smiling because uh, I think it was Tony who mentioned what the policy people should do, and you know I happen to be one of them. So uh, I had a bit of a flashback to when we were dealing with the single telecoms package. I don't know if you remember, because what stands out for most people was the elimination of roaming charges and a lower phone bill. And of course, uh, it's probably been one of the biggest known successes of European cooperation and the European single market. What is also quite popular, at least by by some, uh, and slightly less well known is that we then negotiated uh, net neutrality rules for Europe, but what was sacrificed quite early on in the process was spectrum harmonization. And uh, I do think actually that the auctioning of spectrum for a lot of governments is perceived as primarily a cash cow, and that that was one of the big problems. So I think when we, when we seek to address policy people, uh, it's very good to look at the, um, the capitals of European countries to understand where some of the bottlenecks are here, because uh, uh, really the question of how to overcome fragmentation is a bigger question for us in Europe, but it comes from, from legacy positions, it comes from, uh, well, incumbents, uh, oftentimes including telecoms operators, and I think it is vital to appreciate how that sort of ingrained uh, entitlements and, and roles are playing into this whole discussion. Um, but breaking through it is important because the uh, way we deal with, with telecoms is directly linked to how we are going to be able to roll out a digital single market which has you know, multiple other uh, effects that we cannot all discuss today. 
So um, in light of the fragmentation, I thought it was also necessary maybe to mention uh, perhaps a bit of an elephant in the room when we talk about 5G, but it's the question of trust uh, and the question of, of who is going to determine whether both the infrastructure but also the devices and the services are safe and secure enough for people to use. Uh, we have a whole discussion now that you can all read about every day uh, on whether or not Huawei can be trusted. Uh, I don't want to drag you into the discussion, but I think not mentioning it in a, in a topic like this is also a bit strange. But what it's what it reveals, at least, is that there is a tension between the national competence of national security that member states each uh, determine on their own assessments, perhaps their own intelligence, their own criteria, and the ambition and also the necessity to develop a single market. And this confrontation between uh, different levels of operating and the way in which it leads to fragmentation is, I think, now becoming uh, painfully clear. Uh, so it is something that we have to deal with, and I, I believe uh, we have no time uh, to lose. Now, a few other uh, points in the ecosystem, and then I'll be happy to conclude. Um, as I mentioned, um, 5G and the next generation of technologies more broadly will impact many, many parts of people's lives, and therefore trust is very important. And the question of how Europe wants to develop a governance system and really uh, bake its values, uh, the rule of law, uh, rights protection, and uh, a good uh, individual security for users into this is crucial. And it will depend on a number of, of elements of how we can develop that um, uh, knowledge-based sort of single market, which will also include questions of developing the proper skills, uh, will depend on um, our ability to attract uh, the right investments or to enable an environment for attraction of uh, investments, because we cannot just be the rule makers as Europeans. I mean, we would much rather be rule makers than rule takers, but we also have to think about how we can grow ourselves, because for creating scale and mass and having a competitive system, you also need to think about growth. And I fear that we don't talk about the need to have growth in Europe uh, enough. Um, I believe there will be a bit of a consolidation of the telecoms market. Um, and I hope that that will also contribute to a more enabling environment. Um, we have to think about what we identify as critical infrastructure and have the same kind of approach to that all over Europe. Uh, we have to think about what is in the public interest and what can be left to the market. And that also goes for the other part of this whole discussion, which is the Internet of Things, what kind of standards we need, what kind of uh, compartmentalization uh, we need to build in from the beginning in order to make sure that not one um, compromised device can bleed into a much larger uh, part of the network and thereby create uh, you know, unacceptable kinds of um, insecurities. So the kinds of standards uh, in, in many aspects of this discussion that we deploy and the speed with which we will and the economic weight that we can combine with our political and legislative weight, I believe, will determine whether or not Europe can successfully uh, deploy a system that will be uh, well potent enough to be a global system, which I believe uh, we should. And so I hope we can talk more about what that looks like and about what your questions are in this regard. 
Thank you very much for those very cogent remarks, which actually fit not only well to this panel, but also to the, to the tenor of the whole day, which is really about industrial policy for Europe. So with that, uh, I think we can take about 15 minutes for questions, and I would welcome questions. Let's, let's take about four questions at a time and then let the panelists go through them. Uh, and um, that may or may not burn all the time we have. We'll see. Uh, please, please try not to make long statements, uh, make concise questions. Uh, could I have some questions, please? Oh, no, I'm not seeing hands. <laughs> I, we've stunned you. Please. My name is Robert. I come from Poland. You know it. Uh, this is a question about um, harmonization with Russia, because our yes. country has a big problem to simply say, uh, say, okay, this is a date of our strategy of 5G, yes, we may uh, launch that strategy, but we still cannot if the harmonization with Russia could be neutralized. And this is a question about the uh, 800 mega megahertz, not about 5G, but unfortunately uh, on, in our country, in Romania, we have uh, the same problem. Uh, if we don't harmonize uh, 800, the 5G, could be complicated, yes, and, and there's a question if you see this or have ideas on like that. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Well, I recall that you had historic issues in Poland with the 800 band, and I guess you're worried about the 700 band coming up now as well yeah. for the same kind of reasons. Yes, your, your country, by the way, has also done a lot of work on EMF. Uh, I know your, your, your ministry in particular really published about the, uh, the, the different standards. Many of the Eastern European countries, uh, also Brussels, also Italy, much more restrictive uh, EMF levels. Than Sorry, thank you. Had, had much more restrictive EMF levels than, than, our, than the ICNRP standards call for. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but uh, it's, it's an issue, right? It's good that you think about it. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, next question. Yes, please. Yes, please. Please identify yourself. I'm Thomas Jorgensen from the European University Association. It's not directly a 5G-related question, but more, I mean, since this has been such a focus in the whole issue about security policies and tech, um, that what, what you were saying about thinking security policy into this, when we look at industrial strategy widely and we have this big innovation lag, I mean, if you, if you see the French-German manifesto, massive investments in it, in, in, in innovation and we have these uh, transversal technologies where things like dual use uh, become become an issue uh, how are, are we do we need do we need to handle that together I know many of our members at universities have their own policies who do we collaborate with what are the red flags if let's say this researcher turns out to come from the People's Liberation Army and, and, uh, and things like that. But, but how are we going to, to handle that practically? Yeah, I think that's a timely question, too, at a time when, for example, the United States Department of Commerce is looking at foreign direct, new rules for foreign direct investment, uh, for export controls, and also for visas in areas like artificial intelligence and, uh, and roboticization. So I think you, you raise a key question. Um, do, we, do we have one more? Otherwise, I'll hand off to the panel and let them work through these. Okay. 
Why don't we take these in opposite sequence from, uh, from how we did this? So I'll, I'll uh, start with uh, Ms. Shaka. Thank you. Let me focus on um, the whole question about security standards, how we should deal with it, dual use, and other kinds of sensitivities when it comes to attracting investment and whatnot. Uh, because this is an area that I've worked on for a while, both in, in a longer perspective like dual use regulation, which we in the parliament, I believe, have found a very good solution suggesting that we should, for example, screen the export of surveillance technologies um, to dictatorships to avoid human rights violations with EU-made technology, um, but that the member state governments, again, because of their national security sensitivities and perhaps some other considerations, uh, have not come to a position yet. And I think we're losing precious time. Uh, we started working on this about eight years ago. And imagine if we would have been the ones who have set the standard then. Uh, now we see that the US is potentially going to move faster than we are here. And it's something I didn't hope to see, and I, I still hope we won't see. Um, there is a bit more progress being made on foreign direct investment screening when it comes to investments in critical technologies. Uh, and I think that that begins to address the question of more coordination and more harmonized operating in the European Union. But I see no problem why there could not be, or I don't see why there could not be ad hoc cooperation. So let's take the Huawei case as an example, but maybe also other uh, technologies that we are rolling out why not have an ad hoc committee of experts on behalf of all the member states doing the testing, coming up with a result, and then that being adopted for everybody? Because frankly, this whole picture of one country doing nothing, the other country doing an assessment and saying we can mitigate, another country is saying um, here's the red carpet and we welcome your headquarters, it doesn't send a strong enough message to the rest of the world. It's also not principled enough because uh, I actually believe it's a bit disproportionate how much focus there is now on Huawei versus how little focus there is on potential vulnerabilities in other technologies. So if we take such an approach of screening, which I think is very smart, it better be principled and across one benchmark, no matter whether it's uh, Chinese-made technology or uh, whatever, Dutch-made, no, not Dutch, okay, uh, we're not importing, uh, Tunisian-made uh, technology for all I care. The point is we should be principled and um, have clear criteria and not, not be fragmented because it really doesn't help our, our potential power. Um, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's a very lovely remark. Actually, when uh, Mr. Reiter from Vodafone was giving a keynote address at lunch, uh, he also was uh, talking about the need for coherent, consistent security standards for network gear across the union. It does make enormous sense. Okay, with that, continuing with the reverse sequence, so uh, over to you, Andreas. Thank you. Yes, so I'll take the other question then, uh, about uh, 800, 700 megahertz in Russia. Um, so. I think certainly we've identified this issue, and we have been in contact with Poland, but also with other member states who have a, a border along the eastern, uh, with eastern third countries, where it's not only Russia, but actually a number of other countries as well. And um, I think one of the main background issues that you have to understand is that we have, of course, made the 800 and now the 700 megahertz band available and said we would make that available for 5G and move broadcasting out of these bands. So we have, our, we have the clarity there. In Russia, the situation is that uh, President Putin made a decree some years ago saying that the 
broadcasters should remain and have access to the 700 megahertz band, that they're basically protected in this band. So we have a political decision which has not been changed since, and I think the people also in Russia on the technical level are sort of waiting for some sort of signals as to how to, to move forward on this because they also see the pressures on 5G, they also hear it from their uh, mobile operators and so on. Now the question is what, uh, what will happen and there we see some movements, let's say, on, on, uh, in terms of um, coordination. There, there's a group which is called the Regional Commonwealth Group which deals with telecommunications which has made a, um, a statement, this one is led by Russia, that they are looking at how to best move the broadcasting services out of the 700 megahertz band and by doing so it r avoids the the problems that we have at least parts of the problem in in terms of the cross-border coordination so while we don't have a date we i think we're moving in the right direction and it's of course still something that we need to look at um, in order, and it's very important, I, 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 I'm very clear on that, for those uh, member states bordering those third countries, that uh, they are able to in, introduce the new 5G services on the whole of their territory. Maybe just to unwrap that discussion a little for people. Uh, essentially, if you have broadcasting services in a given country, it tends to be done at high power and from high towers. Trying to do mobile services in close proximity to the border then that tends to be subject to problematic interference. That's what the issue is. The uh, Earlier, Andres was talking about more clarity for cross-border interference within the EU and with closely associated countries. doesn't help us so much when we're talking about Russia or also North Africa because signal travels well over water. Okay, uh, over to you, Tony. Yeah, thanks. Um Um, my company, um, Huawei. But let's look at the at the evidence. I mean, we are we are accused of um, a company of spying for the for the Chinese gom um, government. We are accused uh, of a company um, because of the Chinese regulation, uh, cybersecurity regulation in, in China of installing a backdoor for the, for the Chinese government. But again, where is the evidence? Up, up to now, no one has ever come up or has ever provided any evidence. And I think that, that, that in itself gives you an indication that really the discussion is not about cyber security. Because I think if they were intending to address cyber security, then I think they would adopt what you what you said in terms of developing this uh, ad hoc co cooperation principled approach. You know, let's try to address cyber security for what it is—a technical issue. Now, the way that we, as a, as a company, have been brought into into this is not because we are not secure or not maybe not secure enough as, a, as other companies, it's simply because they are, they are using us as a company, as a, 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 a political football. And we are, we are the one that is obviously happened to be 
a company of Chinese parentage that is operating in uh, outside of uh, China. Maybe. But, but, I mean, 2000 and... But what, 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 what's the uh, uh, evidence there? What, what kind of uh, evidence is there? If I, if I may, I mean, look, I think the question, question of evidence is one, but the other is also a process of, of constant verification. I mean, you don't have to be Chinese to, uh, to invite suspicions. We've had, you know, Volkswagen software problems uh, on our own uh, soil. And I think it, better testing and more, more concern about that yes. would have been great. Yes. And I think there is plenty of reason to be worried about the um, willingness of the Chinese state to use whichever means it can to advance its own strategic and security interests. And I think it's, it's understandable why people are concerned, but it's also understandable that a company like Huawei, but also other companies, would want to have mechanisms that are predictable and that create benchmarks across the board uh, that can be uh, used and verified over and over again. I think that's reasonable, but I also think that the concerns don't come out of um, out of thin air. Uh, so let's find a solution. And if uh, I think it's in everybody's interest to come come to that and to take it out of uh, the he said she said kind of uh, context, and to also, for example, as Europeans, have a clear answer to our American allies who have now escalated this point as one of their key. Priorities and are, are not shy about uh, expectations uh, in our direction. Tony, I, I don't think we. Uh, just, can, I, can I just add one? I, I think I, I entirely agree. I think we need to, to have a level playing field where every company <coughs> is checked according to, uh, to what they do and uh, how they do it and based on standard. By the way, we are the only company that has established a cybersecurity center in the UK, in, in Belgium, in Germany, in China, in Canada. Why? Because we felt that we need to be whiter than white. And that's the, the only way that we can demonstrate we have an open up our operating system, our equipment to any kind of scrutiny. Now, we cannot do more, more than that. Yes, well, I, I, I believe, if, I'm, if I may, I believe the uh, head of cybersecurity in the UK, who has your source code, says that, he's, that they see absolutely no evidence of any systemic problem. So I think that is worth noting. Okay, over to you, Lisa. Well, thank you. Uh, knowing that I stand between you and the coffee break, I'll be very brief. Uh, the operators have worked with security for a long, long time. For us, uh, security is key. We, we know confidentiality is, is key for our uh, customers. So, so this is one of the things that are uh, uh, in the DNA of, of the telcos. Uh, we've heard a lot of, of issues about 5G being less secure. It's more secure. Let me uh, just kill that rumor. You have much more ability to, to, um, to use encryption, and the network slicing makes it uh, evidently uh, more secure. From our, uh, from our point of view, we think security should be in all parts of the uh, digital ecosystem. We are all responsible. We all need to ensure that uh, we have the trust uh, from the users, but also that it, it is 
there is proof for, for that uh, our networks, our devices, our services are secure. And uh, so, so from our side, we're also strong believers in security by design. So we actually are very much in agree with also with you, Shaka. It's 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 a matter of creating a principle of security for all. And with that, since we're right on time, or well, maybe a couple of minutes over. Uh, I think this would be a good time to end the panel. Uh, I would appreciate if you could show your appreciation for these really quite terrific panelists who have uh, given us, I think, a very good discussion today.